Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. everybody welcome to terror talk with shannon and kathy Uh, i wanted to mention that uh, you just heard that fabulous theme song i know that uh, mannequin uprising is working on zhuzhing a version of that for season six yeah for season six and coming up with another a few more cues for us and some outro music and we just always appreciate mannequin uprising doing that for us because we like the music so oh and the monday minicasts for patreon are going to get a jingle as well i'm told exciting oh and i asked for because in our unsolved case files last the last episode so if you haven't heard about that one we talk about the eight day bride and boy in the box boy in the box right you in that we joked about having a jing- our own like unsolved mysteries jingle and i'm oh. i'm told that's being worked on as well so love that you know <laughs> we appreciate you mannequin uprising for all of your hard work yeah and uh patronage of the show uh today on the show we are going to talk about dorothy jane scott and then i am going to talk about the hinterkaifeck uh, murders from germany nice yeah and uh i think kathy's gonna go first so let's let me take you back to the 80s. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Shocker. I know, right? <laughs> you know me in the 80s. Uh, you're very tight. <clears throat> We're going to discuss the unsolved case of Dorothy Jane Scott, the murder of Dorothy D- Jane Scott. So she disappeared mm. on May 28th, 1980 in Anaheim, California. So not too far from here. She had driven two co-workers to the hospital after one had been bitten by a spider And while they were waiting for a prescription to be filled, Scott went to get her car to bring it around to meet them. So friend didn't have to walk. So her car approached them as they were walking out, right? So they knew that she was going to get the car. They leave the hospital. The car starts to approach them. But as it does so, it speeds away. Neither one of the folks could see who was driving, but the headlights came at them and blinded them and took off. Okay. So they actually ended up reporting Dorothy Jane missing a couple of hours later after not hearing from her. I just want to pause for a second because clearly, I think this is why a lot of horror movies that are made now do like to go back to the 80s. Because if you had a cell phone, you'd be like, Dorothy J, was that you in the car? Hey, Doe. Hey, Dot. <laughs> Dottie. Dottie. Girl. Right? What are, you, what are you doing? Okay. Makes that a lot more difficult. So yeah, in the preceding sure. months... What we do know is Scott had been receiving anonymous phone calls from a man who had reportedly been stalking her, and he had threatened to get her alone and cut her up into bits Hmm. so no one will ever find her. Bits, eh? Yes. All right. Who was Dorothy Jane Scott? Well, she was a 32-year-old mother of uh, one. She had a son uh, from California. She worked as a secretary at two gift shops in the area. 
She was described as religious, sweet, and a committed mother to her four-year-old. And she was also described by her father as someone who didn't really date. She, I think, was very invested in being a mom, going to work, and just kind of doing her own thing. Yeah, and that's enough. And that's enough. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. that's a lot. Um, so I, I think one of the things that they didn't even think about could be that there's somebody that had romantic interest in her. Yeah. But I don't know if it was reciprocated. So no. let's let's continue. Mm-hmm. The case began with threatening phone calls from an unknown man who claimed to be watching her. Terrifying. Mm-hmm. For months, he tormented her and at one point leaving a wilted rose on her car after professing his love for her. That's not a stalker. No. So when she turned him down, the calls turned threatening in nature. And she, if this is not 80s, she took <laughs> up karate classes. Oh, my God. Now it would be like Krav Maga or something. Yeah, right, right. So the threats came to a head on May 28th, 1980, when Scott brought her colleague along with another coworker to the UCI Medical Center in Orange County, California. At 9 p.m., Scott was at an employee meeting at work, and she noted that her coworker, Conrad Bostrin, I think that's how it's pronounced, Mm -hmm. did not look well and had red mark on his arm. So she and and another coworker, Pam Head, left the employee meeting to take Bostrin to the emergency room at UC Irvine. So on the way to the hospital, they stopped by Scott's parents' house to check on her son. And at that time, she also changed her black scarf to a red one. At the hospital, the medical personnel determined that Bostrin had suffered a black widow spider bite and treated him. Head said that she and Scott remained in the ER waiting room, and at no time, Head said, did Scott leave her side. Mm. A little bizarre. Okay. So about a week after Dorothy's vanishing, a man called her parents home and said, quote, I've got her, Ooh. end quote, and hung up abruptly. This Ooh. is freak. This is something out of like Black Christmas. Yeah, no, we don't like. So a few days later, Dorothy's father, Jacob, went to the media hoping that it could drum up new leads. And after a newspaper ran a story about Dorothy, the editor got a call from a man who claimed to have kidnapped her. And he said that he loved Dorothy and caught her cheating. So he killed her. I mean, that makes sense. Uh, This unidentified (laughs) man gave up details only the kidnapper could have known. So they did know that he must have known her in some way, shape, or form. Um, So he knew things like what she wore that evening and why she was even at the hospital that night. So clearly they had had some communication. Then Dorothy's family continued to get more phone calls for years. Her mother, Vera, believed that they were all from the same man. Mm. Police believe the caller was Scott's killer. From 1980 to 1984, Scott's mother Vera also received phone calls from a man who claimed to have Scott or to have killed her. None of the calls could be traced, however, because the caller didn't stay on long enough. For a while, like back in the 80s, they'd have to like, keep them on, keep them on, keep them talking, right? The two minute tracing. Yeah. So after the news broke, the call stopped. So in June 1980, a man called the Orange County Register, a local newspaper that had published a story on the disappearance, and claimed that he had killed Scott. The editor also said the caller knew Conrad Bostrin had suffered from a spider bite. So the night of May tw- the night of May 28th, he also knew that Scott had been wearing a red scarf. She had changed her black scarf to a red one after the employee meeting. Neither of these details had been published in the June 12th article. The caller also claimed Scott phoned him from the hospital that night. Mm. Pam Head disputed that claim, saying she had been with Scott the entire time and she had not made a phone call. Investigators believe the anonymous caller was responsible for Scott's death. On August 6, 1984, a construction worker discovered dog and human bones side by side about 30 feet from Santa Ana Canyon Road. 
The bones were partly charred and authorities believe they had been there for two years as a bushfire had swept across the site in 1982. A turquoise ring and watch were also found. Scott's mother said the watch had stopped at 1230 on May 29th, about an hour after Head and Bostron last saw Scott's vehicle. On August 14th, the bones were identified as Scott's by dental records. An autopsy could not determine the cause of death. Lastly, a memorial service was held on August 22nd. No arrests were ever made. The podcast Morbidology claimed that the parents received one last phone call from the man that posed a cryptic question. Is Dorothy home? Mm. Crime blogger 1983, who is an individual who dives into cold cases, was able to communicate with Dorothy's grown son, Sean. According to Sean, he became aware of a potential suspect by the name of Mike Butler. Butler was someone who lived in in the Santiago Mountains and engaged in cult activity. According to her friends, he was obsessed with Dorothy. His sister worked with Dorothy, which adds up to him knowing her schedule. Throughout their discussion, it was found that there were other suspicious connections with people in her life, including the people who were at the hospital the evening of her disappearance. Really, this one creeped me out a little bit. Yeah, who do you think it was? Well, I was diving deeper, and there were also some other stuff that had gone on with a business that the parent, her parents had owned, and one of the people at the hospital like knew the father. So that mm. like there were all these weird, like it easily could have been someone who didn't like the father. Yeah, like there was a, a lot of it got really convoluted, and I'm like, okay, it's not an episode. Like I'm not going to take three hours to go through it. But it seemed like there may have been a little incestuous circle. Oh, okay. Um, but so far, what I did read is that they haven't been able to really solidify any of those leads. So that's why it's still open. Got it. Or got cold. it. Yeah, they never got any of the data. No. Unlike the mini casts for our patrons we just did on alien abductions, that had a lot of data. Listen, <laughs> a lot of data. <laughs> All right. I am going to take you guys through what they call the Hinterkaifeck murders. So get ready. I'm ready. Because we're also transporting. On the evening of March 31st, 1922. Ooh, you took us back. (laughs) On Hinterkaifeck Farm in rural Bavaria, Germany, six residents were murdered with a pickaxe. Who's dead, you may ask? Who does that? Who who does that? A pickaxe. The end. (laughs) Yukon Cornelius. Yeah, right. (laughs) Right. So who's dead? Husband and wife, Andreas, age 63, and Kazelia, 72 years old. And they were that old. Loving the age difference, but yes. So their last name is Gruber. Wait, what was the age difference? 72 and what? 63. Oh, okay. Their widowed daughter, Victoria, who's 35. Victoria Gabriel is her name. Victoria's children, Kazelia, Jr., I guess, seven, and Yosef, two. And the family's maid, actually, Maria Baumgartner. Two-year-old Joseph was killed in his crib. The family maid, Maria, was killed in her bed. The rest of the family was murdered in the barn and found stacked on top of each other. So the person that murdered them, authorities decided they had lived in the farm for six days after they committed the murders. They figured this out because the cattle had been fed Meals had been eaten in the kitchen. Neighbors saw smoke rising from the chimney for cooking. And the dog was tied up to a post when the mailman came on Saturday. Like so bizarre. Not loose, right? 
The mailman came on Saturday. The bodies were found on Sunday. So, you know, murder on a Monday, bodies on a Sunday. No. Okay. Also, Maria Baumgartner, who was the maid, unfortunately, it was her first day when she was murdered. First day on the job. So the position had been open for several months. This is relevant. Trust me. Okay. So was it random or some kind of plotted murder? So here's the thing. Six months prior, strange things had began to happen. Inexplicable noises, loudest in the dead of the night around the farm. After the family didn't investigate or do anything about those noises because they were so freaked out, the previous maid had quit. Like, she quit because there was so many weird kind of unexplained things going on on the farm. Okay. So it turns out that there were good reasons for the vacancy, like, Andreas, the husband, was also well known as an abusive husband, beating his wife regularly. Mm. So that there's a layer of that, right? When you hear like a family murdered, it's like if the mm-hmm. man was abusive, that we automatically think these days, oh, it must have he must have had a hand in it. Well, yes. Also, a servant witnessed him forcing himself on his daughter. So the maid went to the police when she witnessed that. And there was a reputation for this man. Father and daughter were both convicted of incense, incest. Oh, okay. The father was convicted for a year for incest and the daughter was convicted for a month. Back in the day, if you were a victim of incest, you would be convicted of it. That's so crazy. Although we're not that far ahead. Okay. (laughs) As soon as he left prison... So he went to he went to jail for a year. So this is like flashing back, right, before all of the murders and everything. I sort of started at the end, and now I've gone back and told you why the previous maid quit, because there was weird noises mm-hmm. she didn't understand. And now there's this, like, history of him being an abusive husband and obviously a sexually abusive father, and he goes to prison. So as soon as he left prison, he just took right up with the abuse, both physical and sexual, right at, I mean, he went home. She's there. The daughter, Victoria, started an affair with a local male. After the male's wife died, so she was having an affair with another guy. That guy was married. She also obviously has had a previous mate that she had the kid with. So this man's wife dies, and he decides, I would like to marry Victoria. But Victoria falls pregnant, and the father tells the fiance that he was most likely the product, this baby was a product of incest and it's his baby. So the guy just leaves, freaks out and leaves. And so then this two-year-old that's ultimately murdered in his crib was born. And that's Yosef, the two-year-old that was living in the home. The fiance, before leaving, reports the incest again. So they get reported again. And the father was held by law enforcement for two weeks, but the fiance then retracted the statement. So the father was not convicted again. All of this makes a family very isolated. Sure. So they're living in, you know, 19, the late 19s and then into the beginning of the 1920s with a reputation for physical and sexual abuse incest a a baby that it's a a product of this incest and they live on this big farm in bavaria and so they're very isolated so that sort of paints a picture of 
all of the drama and trauma that's going on in this house already. Sure. Back to March 1922, which is when the murders happened. The whole family was hearing noises. The maid had quit. And Andreas, this is the the patriarch, Andreas found a newspaper in the home that no one had brought from a town miles away. So these are the sort of the weird things that were happening as objects were showing up. Andreas found also a set of footprints in the snow that winter that led from the forest to their home. Mm. But no footprints were found leaving. Oh, that's weird. I know. That's so creepy. (laughs) Also, the lock on the tool shed was found tampered with, like someone had you know, tried to use a tool to open it. They do a full search of the house, the barn. They're always paranoid now. They're looking around. They never find any other signs of any intruders in the full search. Like they don't find anyone living in the barn or the attic or whatever. So on the first work day of this new maid, she's taking Cece, the seven-year-old, to school. And the school tells the maid that Cece had told them a story of witnessing violence from her grandpa and grandma. Not unusual, of course, because, again, like we said, there's a history of physical violence, domestic violence in the home. Then she tells them she'd witnessed her mother go into the woods and be gone for hours. So this is hypothetically on the day of the murder. Sure. So the maid comes home with this story from the school. So everybody goes out into the woods to find the mom. And they found Victoria laying, resting on a piece of wood in the forest. And the following Monday, Cece's teacher called the cops and had them go to the house. So this is the kind of weird shit that was going on. The doors were locked and no one was home. So they heard this story. Everybody went into the woods, they find Victoria, and then the following Monday, Cece's teacher calls the cops because of all this weird shit going on with this family, and of course, this family has that reputation there anyway. The cops go, the doors are locked, and no one's home. And later that day, there's no sign of them. They look around, they don't find the whole family. Then a neighbor sees the chimney emitting smoke you know, a day later or whatever. And then the neighbor sees a man emerge from the house days later, but that's not the Grubers. It's not one of the Gruber members. That's so bizarre. And then on Sunday, there's no Grubers in church. So no matter their reputation, everybody went to church on Sunday. So all of this was obviously very unusual and suspicions were starting to rise. And when the Grubers weren't in church, that really like, nailed it for everyone like okay there's obviously something going on because no matter what happens somebody from the family's in church so on monday the postman noticed that all was quiet when he normally would talk to people when he delivered the mail mm-hmm. he usually have a conversation with one a member of the family the groceries were attempted at the at delivery from the local store and no one was home okay so then the ex-fiance sent men to check as all this was not adding up to the whole town. Like mm-hmm. everybody was confused and it's a very small town mm-hmm. and this shit like this didn't happen. So the ex fiance says, all right, I'm sending men to the home. So then the neighbors and the townsfolk <laughs> descend on this home to find out once and for all, like what the heck happened to the Grubers? You can imagine this in a movie, right? And they begin at the barn and lucky for them, Andreas was found hacked to death Cecilia and Victoria were nearby him and also hacked to death. 
The seven-year-old Cecilia's body was found a little ways away, but with a clump of her own hair in her hand. Oh, God, it's terrifying. It indicated she had been alive for a long time after she possibly witnessed the murders first because she had pulled hair out of her head. That is so sad. Because she had be she had had this condition to manage her emotions prior it was found out like that was one of her anxiety uh, behaviors, all this trauma in the home, all this weird oh, shit, so all this sexual and physical violence around her. She had developed the behavior of picking out her own hair to manage her emotions. So she, what they surmise is that she had witnessed these murders and then began picking out her hair before she died. And the autopsy that was performed on the scene, I guess, confirmed that it was pre-mortem or whatever you call it, before her death that she had picked it out. All these men went inside, inside the house, and there was a mutilated corpse of Joseph, the two-year-old there, and a maid in her own room dead in her bed. And so detectives found a pickaxe and a garden hoe that, that were used in the murders. Why were they murdered? Speculation abounds, and many suspects kind of came forward. You know, obviously there was a lot going on with this family, so it's kind of, it was kind of like, well, I don't know. They were weird. <laughs> they were weird anyway. We yeah. don't know what's going on. Well, like you said, isolated, right? Yeah. And so a lot of this information really never leaked out. So what, what could be the possible leads? Right, exactly. And so it took them a long time to really figure it out. You know, one unknown man asked questions about murder in town. And the man ran into the woods shouting he was the one who murdered them. So that's one weird thing that happened. But there's like someone nobody knew. Here's another fun fact. FYI, the Grubers were very, very wealthy. So was the motivation robbery? There's one man, a mentally ill man in a Santa... What's that? That just seems so simple. Why are you going to slaughter... That's like a very passionate murder. It feels very personal, doesn't it? Like all the hacking. Yep. Like you don't need to go to all that trouble. It's no, not to that rob hard. the house. Right. So one man, a mentally ill man in a sanatorium whose roommate stated the man said he confessed to raiding a farm and he had a history of violent robberies and, you know, was in possession of bloodstained money and all of that. So that was one thought is that it was a robbery and that this maybe this man did it and he was confessing to his his roommate in the sanatori- sanatorium. There was also this other theory that there were brothers who were local robbers. They were notorious. And the old maid that had quit reported that one of the brothers had tried to gain access to the home in the past, stating he knew where they all slept and kept the money. Andreas had caught them in the barn prior. There was, I guess, an incident that they found out later where Andreas had caught these two brothers in the barn trying to steal stuff. And so that was then now another theory. Mm-hmm. So we've got some unknown man that ran into the woods saying he did it, confessing to the, the forest gnomes or something. And then we have another man who was mentally ill in a sanitarium saying he raided a farm and, you know, killed people. And then we have now this third theory of brothers who were local robbers maybe did it for the money because here's the thing. There was a ton of gold bonds and jewelry in the home after the murders. So no, they didn't take anything. All of this, all these riches were found in the home, but nobody took it. So now it's like, well, <laughs> if it was a robbery, robbery were they just stupid? And didn't take right? Yeah, that does that. Robbery doesn't add up, for me. <laughs> right? So, but now the cops are thinking like, oh, well, how were they so rich? 
Like nobody kind of knew that. Like, okay. uh, how are they so rich? So maybe there's something in that. So was Andreas using his property as a military meeting place? There were rumors of yeah. that. Apparently two military planes were stored there. Was there some like mysterious military conspiracy going on or some kind of revenge? Because here's the other thing, right? So uh -huh. remember Victoria's first husband was dead. Right. But was he? There were rumors that he returned to the farm, killed the family, and went to Russia. Some claims were made he was seen there and admitted to the crimes, but then they were, then but then people recanted. So remember when the week long where somebody was living in the home, somebody saw like a man coming and going from the home, yep. mm -hmm. and they didn't know who it was. Mm -hmm. I would think that they would recognize who that was, but you know, you go away to the military. I mean, who knows? He could have been disguised. There's also Victoria's jilted lover. This is like a movie. I know, right? Like a whodunit. I know. It's a good one. Victoria's jilted lover. He was first to discover the bodies. He had a key to the farmhouse that had gone missing prior, but he had it. He was not apprehensive with the body handling and was not emotional about any of it. Because I guess what they did is they do like an autopsy on the scene, remember, mm -hmm. in 1922. Mm -hmm. And then they cart out the bodies. And the people that were there were helping cart out the bodies and one of the people that was carting out his own ex-lover was this guy. Yeah. And there's these reports, and as we know, who knows what was really going on of him being, you know, kind of blunted about the whole thing. Wow. There's more. A new lead comes 11 years later. So now we're into the 1930s. A woman on her deathbed stated to a priest that her brothers had done the murders. That item only came to light 11 more years later, right? Like 11 years, and she says it on her deathbed. It, the only reason why it came to light is that it was published in the newspaper. <laughs> so they tracked down the priest that she confessed it Goodness. to to confirm the names. One of the brothers was killed in 1944 in France in the war, and the other brother was brought in for questioning, held for three weeks, there was no proof, no confession. There's no case files from the original investigation, so there was no way to continue. It had another a fire or something had taken out the papers. So the barn had partially burned the, the next year, like right after the murders. The barn had kind of half burned down. And then the farm was torn down completely because, of course, nobody wanted to live there. And due to this, when they tore the farm down, they found an item, a mattock which is a handmade weapon that had killed the victims. They found the murder weapon the next year when everything burned down and when mm -hmm. they were tearing things down. This handmade weapon was handmade by Andreas. This only told them that a singular person could not have done this murder alone. There was so much hacking, so much going on, so many, so many different kinds of weapons, so many different kinds of wounds that they now surmised that it was more than one person for sure, mm -hmm. that the killer knew farm work and took care of the dog after the murders. I mean, who does that? Wow. I mean. Wow. Also, the ex was continually accused locally for the murders. Like after they happened, this the ex, you know, the ex-lover was still living in town and was continually being bullied and harassed and, and told that he was the murderer in town. He actually took several people several times to court for slander over the several years Jesus. after this all happened. <laughs> so you're welcome. We don't know who did it. What they still don't the know. Hell? It's an unsolved mystery. Well, 1922. Yeah. 
I mean, 11 years later, Yikes. they get this thing in the paper and they still didn't know who did it, but there were all this stuff that was coming out afterwards. Pretty crazy. Who do you think it was? The ex-lover? You know, it's hard to know without... Random military political knowing plotting. Knowing the exact same... Uh, knowing the exact motivation. I mean, what I was imagining as you were reading that was this dude was doing some crazy illegal shit and making money and someone got and pissed off and took his and, family out. Yeah, it was abusive and awful and... Wasn't paying his debts. He wasn't, you know, and someone took him out. Or, you know, one of the... I don't know. That that That's the only thing that really, I think, makes... He was out there ruining lives. He was. So... It's, who knows? You know, law of averages. Eventually, <laughs> it's going to catch up to you. Like both interpersonally and you know, yeah. town wide, and all of this. Holy so. shit! <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Terror Talk. We very much appreciate you, and we hope you enjoy our unsolved case files. Catch you next week. <laughs>